Damaged Goods Podcast. <laughs> That's crazy. Uh, so you you do that every podcast you do, mm-hmm. you, you're doing this. Yeah, I'm around. I'm moving. Like if you I'll listen to it, you can you can hear me moving around. Like I'll go to another room and pick up something and reach from it. It's crazy. Dude, how are, show show me the muscles. Show me the arm muscles. Are they, how are they? Oh. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, um, I've lost about 45 pounds over the last like three to four years. So it's weird. I look like a distance runner now. It's really weird, man. It's really weird. I thought you were going to say 45 pounds in the last like two months. I was going to be like, God damn. Yeah. Nah. I'm like between 190 and 195 at 6'4". When most of the time people knew me, I was hovering between 220 and 230. You be eating good, that writing money, dude, eating good, that's why. (laughs) It's funny, because when I was the brokest, I was probably uh, doing the most, the worst stuff as far as health was concerned. And then when I got like better at writing and figuring things out, that's when stuff started. Like I started figuring things out and got healthier as time progressed because I realized what age I was at. And um, I started having um, peers pass away. Ugh. So that stretch where we lost, um, we lost a pumpkin head. We lost a uh, P and we lost a few other people later to combat Jack. That was like the wake up call for me. And then like, my mom passed in the middle of that too. So I was like, all right, I'm good. Dude, that, you know, it's like, it's, I hate, this sounds so cliche, but you know, when like a tragedy or certain things like close to home, like your peers in this case kind of starting to see the effects of their health. Yeah. It's funny how sometimes that's the shit that can make you like focus up and sharpen up and, and like maybe, maybe get your shit together. I don't, yeah. I mean, oh, you know, I, I, I uh, my father is like, uh, he recently just got stage four liver cancer, right? And I, I was with him for like seven weeks of the first part of it when it was pretty bad. And you think that would make me like not drink anymore, but I'm having a drink because I thought I was going to lose my whole computer about two hours ago and everything. Yeah. Else, so. But it didn't work on me. But that, that responsible voice, that weight loss voice uh, is a damaged goods alum. He's a writer. He's a journalist. He's a historian and probably overall a Bostonian. Uh, my man, Dart Adams, and, and he's doing this all standing up, which is, I'm sitting down in a sweet <laughs> chair, you're miraculous with your strength. Yeah, yeah, man, is I, I'm like a shark that has to be constantly in motion, so you have to, like, when, if there wasn't a, a, a pandemic happening, I would be walking this entire city like Kane That's and Kung Fu or Eli in the Book of Eli. That's so true, I haven't you been are- able to do that. You are a walking ass motherfucker. If people don't yeah. know, um, and like the city that we come from, Boston is is a, a place where you can be a walking ass motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. So there would be an event or something, and like um, a, a place in Austin, Brighton. I'd go there and then walk all the way home, and that's a ninety minute walk. And I would get back, and like they said, it's a ninety minute walk on Google. <laughs> I got here in sixty nine. That's yeah. bullshit. <laughs> that's the good shit man i miss those late night walks walking from chinatown all the way back to jp in the middle of the night yeah. cold with like a snorkel on fit the yeah. hempsey on you maybe something like that yeah you know those walks are you are you not are you walking the city um lately in terms of this shit no i haven't left the house to like go on a long walk in 
since March, like March, when it wasn't snowing because we didn't have a snowy winter here. Right. So I could actually, it was weird because like it did it snowed, I think three times all winter. And I was able to just like still walk around the city. So I was doing that. I was going like to Beacon Hill and going to the North End and back like all the time in the, in the winter. And I was like, yo, when summer comes, I'm gonna be all over this bitch. And yeah. as you know, yeah. Mm, 70, 70, this is day 70 or 71. Well, you've been counting. I was counting the first, but did you, have you seen me reaching for my various beverages? <laughs> like, I mean, I, my hands are going in so many places. If you guys are listening, you have to listen with your eyes. Uh, like I've got a fucking glass of water, a coffee and um, some cognac. And they're all scattered about, which is dangerous. Like, I don't like having liquids near my electronics, so like my computer. Yeah. You know, dude, yeah. for a guy like yourself or me, so much of your, like, life exists on that thing. So having, like, liquids even close by, dude, gives me the fucking heebie-jeebie, yeah. dude. I, especially yeah. somebody else's. Because, you know, oh. you might be responsible of your coffee, your water. but Jesus Christ. Oh, any DJ I know, I make sure there's no oh, liquid yeah. anywhere near their computer. Dude, our engineers in the studio, dude, like the control board, they won't even let you walk near it holding it, dude. And I'm yeah. good with you. $200,000 SSL board or some shit. Fucking. I used to be at the bridge sounding stage, and anytime anybody brought any kind of open container anywhere near a laptop or a computer, everybody, you just see eyes. Like, yeah, dude. Dude, it's too much shit in there, man. Like, I, I mean, do you, I, I'm constantly backing up shit on like terabytes and, and stuff and like hard drives. When it used to be music files, now it's like writing documents or videos from like shit I'm filming for a podcast or whatever. I'm like always doing it because I just don't trust it, dude. I get scared. Yeah. I'm paranoid. I save everything on flash drives. I'll yeah. show you. Start got a gang of flash drives just chilling. Between uh, 16 and 128. So it was like, I just have mad flash drives just always hanging around. So it's like, if I come up with something or if I have some file or something, I just put back it up, put it on this laptop, put it on the flash drive. And then I put it in a file, zip it, and then email it to myself. Yo, I email it to three of my email accounts when I do that. <laughs> Every, everything associated with me has a backup version of it and the hard drives. Yeah. It's, it pays off to be a little paranoid with important documents like that because then you have them. I've, thank God, I've never lost anything of importance. But you hear about musicians and people losing sessions and files and beats you can't make yeah. it. In. Like, some things, like, you can't write the same thing again, unless you mean you can it and copy it. But, like, to conjure up that, that fucking beautiful natural art, like, sometimes you can't mm -hmm. find the words again, dude. Have you yeah. ever lost anything? Yes. I mean. Yes. I wrote, once I wrote this entire piece that was uh, 20,000 words, Jesus. my Wi-Fi dropped and I thought it would be back up in 15 minutes. It didn't come back up for an hour. And when it did come back up, it was on medium. So I figured it had saved, right? At the last place. I go back, the entire file is gone. Jesus Christ, dude. I don't, the that's, thing, it was a, it was a, uh, was it a 20th? It was a 25th anniversary piece about In Living Color. Oh. And I did a disgusting <laughs> amount of research. And I found clips on the internet. And I, I had like all these notes. And then when I lost it, I just said, fuck it. Yeah, I didn't, so I didn't, you didn't rewrite it again. 
Yeah. So like the 30th anniversary came up and I, I was like, I still had all the notes lying around. I was like, I don't want to do that for free. So, oh, dude, that's like, that's one of those crushing things. Like I thought I was going to have that moment today and just lose so much shit. I haven't saved. I was preparing myself for the worst, just accepting it. I was going to be rolling around on the couch on the floor, depressed as fuck for weeks. I was thinking like keeping the shade shut, but thank God it fucking worked. But that shit's scary, dude. Shit's scary. It dude. is. Like, I, I, I do this thing now when I write. Um, well, not, not when I sit down, right? But like if I'm on the go and I, I get an idea, like a paragraph or a couple or something comes to me and I don't have like a computer, I write it on my phone in the notes. And then I usually save it and then email it right away to me. And then mm -hmm. I'll take it and put it in Word and, you know, wherever I'm going to use it later. But like I'm constantly writing shit on my phone, saving these ideas because like I'd rather lose like other things like pictures or certain shit but there's something about these ideas that I, I mean you can't replace a picture right you can't replace like a piece of music you might have made either i guess but it's something about the ideas something i write down uh losing that dude is like more traumatizing for me i don't know it is it is for me because a picture anything i made i created it existed and for the most part usually people either saw it yeah or they heard it or I just don't have it anymore, you know, versus that idea. I didn't even give it a chance to build it into what I wanted it to be. It didn't see fruition. So to me, that's something that's more traumatizing. That's versus, a good point. Yeah. But like the only time I ever made something and it was out there in the world and I lost it and it really like, it made me just go, God damn it, um, was 10 years ago, around this month, between April and May, I had I created uh I had a pioneering podcast slash radio show called the Scrunch Face Show, and I had I had a bunch of like acts in the like beat culture world and like underground hip hop, and they all got interviewed and made appearances, and I had all these legendary shows and interviews, right? And it was on an archive for like five six years, and I just always um, figured it would be there forever, right? So when people would say, yo, da -da 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 -da, I was like, I interviewed him back in 2011. Here's the link. Wham. Oh. And people were like, yo, this is crazy. So one time it was me going back and forth with Grap Lover, who's um, Pete Rock's brother. And I was like, uh, Grap told me that in 2011 when we did our interview. I was like, matter of fact, let me pull it up now. The site ain't there. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's always there. So... I'm looking and I find out that that whole site and everything else is gone. Oh. And I'm thinking to myself, yo, we did 50 something shows yeah. and we had some legendary interviews. Oh, we had some all time great things happen on that show and now it's gone. So I've spent like the next couple of years trying to track people down to, cause it went into syndication at one point. Oh, what? That's ill. Yeah. It went into syndication at one point. It was aired on another network. And I was like asking somebody if they had like the old files because they were so big. Our shows, you know, when you do a show, it's usually an hour, two hours. Yeah. We didn't have any regulations on our show. So sometimes our shows would go so long that people would be like, yo, we got to go. We got work in the morning. You, yeah, like a Joe Rogan podcast timetable, like three and a half, four hours and shit. Yeah. So we would do everything. And then like we had, I would have music to play. Then I'd have backup music. And we would just have reams of music and we would just sit there with the guests and interview them. And it'd be like, they were so unused to having an interview that they actually enjoyed that, you know, they stuck around for it. 
And like, that was something that like I prided myself on back then. And like between 2011, 2012, when we did that show, once it ended, that's when I started getting into like going into like local uh, shows, like radio shows. I did uh, Beat Rhymes in Life with, um, with Miss JD and Jay So and um, Leah V. It was a great show. I just been on yeah, that I, yeah, I did that show. Um, I ended up on Musonomics with uh, Dana. With, with Dana, um, that was a great show. Um, Dana Scott. I ended up on um, uh, Overdog Radio. Yeah. Overdog Radio with Champ Chuck and Mags and all those guys. Shout out, Champ um, Chuck. That's the man. Yeah. I did a few episodes of um, LFOD Radio. You know, so like. I, it all came from me doing that show, you know, it late at night on a Sunday, interviewing all these independent underground people and like putting people on the new music and like giving, finding my voice that way before I was able to like be the person in the chair, you know, on another show. It's a good, that's a good like story of kind of that path that you took, you know, like you got to find your voice in anything you do, right? Like just, you're a rapper, you're a singer, you're, you're a writer, you're a whatever, a host of something. And I, you know, like you, you kind of noticing that your experiences on all those other shows as maybe a guest or a contributor or whatever, kind of just sculpted and crafted your voice into your voice. Like, you know, like, you know, when you, you know what it's like when you get comfortable in the way you do something, if you're a musician out there, you're a fucking skateboarder, a chef, when you're not necessarily emulating your favorites anymore, even yeah. though we all retain our influences, but you're not emulating anybody. You you know exactly what you want to do and how you do it. You've accepted the good things about it or the bad, and you're doing it. That's like the best when you get in that zone. And sometimes it takes like a, a story like that. Like you got to travel those those lands out there on all those people's shows, and then you kind of come and create your own land. You know what I'm saying? And it's dark land, dude. And it's it's all it's like it's like perfect because you walk those other lands. You have to. Yeah. So as a writer, uh, I used to read certain writers and then I would be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, pissed off or angry or, 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 or upset because I couldn't do what the writers I loved did. So I would read like a Langston Hughes or Richard Wright or uh, um, Octavia Butler or um, uh who wrote um, uh, Raisin in the Sun? Her birthday just uh, happened not too long ago. <coughs> oh, dude, um, I don't. I wish I had like a an interview. Yeah, yeah, but like her, um, the woman who wrote Let the Circle Be Unbroken. You know, right. like all these different authors were able to use language and prose and describe things in a way I couldn't, and that would piss me off. So it wasn't until I found two books, uh, one by Iceberg Slim, Pimp Story in My Life, and wow. the other one was um, Piri Thomas's Down These Mean Streets, which I like to call oh, the I've official. I've never read that before. It's an incredible book. It should be adapted into a film. It, I call it the official book of the Black Tino experience. Um, and I read those two books, and they're written very frankly, matter-of-factly, and succinctly. But the way they color and explain and describe the world you're in transforms you there in a way that doesn't make you feel like I couldn't write this myself. 
It's not, you know? it, yeah, I know what you mean. It doesn't seem like a whole, like a whole, like another planetary being came down and crafted it. I know, I mean, even with music, there's times like that, like you, if you're an aspiring musician and you look at people like Prince and shit, sometimes you, it can almost yeah. psych you out. But then you, I at least remind myself, as much as I admire this person and I'm blown away by their craft, I shouldn't be trying to do what they did anyway. I got to find comfortably how I can do what it is inside me. Especially as a writer, you have stories mm -hmm. that only Dart can tell. And you, exactly. Right? I can only tell my stories. And you have, once you find your way to tell them, you stop kind of like, com not comparing, but, but looking at your favorites and being like, there's no way I could write Soul on Ice is like my favorite book. There's no way I could write like Eldridge Cleaver because even Eldridge Cleaver didn't write that same way after that book. You exactly. Know? And it's like, you got to stop at some point as a creative, you stop kind of looking at your favorites like that. And then you kind of know what, what you can do, not, you know, your limitations mm -hmm. as much, but what your specific style is like, you know? Exactly. Like, um, one thing I derived a lot of, um, like inspiration even though i never could do it from skateboarders because in yeah, boston right. we're great especially in my neighborhood so i grew yeah, up in the south end I used to skate in your neighborhood when i yeah. was in middle school a lot so i grew up in the south end lower roxbury and for anybody in boston who knows if you lived in any town around boston in the metro area <laughs> you would get on the train and come to the south end and lower yeah. roxbury <laughs> to skate because oh, yeah. there were parks there was the um the Boston the, Medical uh, Center, dude. I used to see you had the Boston Medical Center. You had the um the library, Copley Library. Yeah, yeah Copley in general, the library, the underpass going to to ninety right there. I used to yeah. skateboard in Tent City a lot, right there. Yes. That, like that whole area right in front of the Back Bay Station, dude. Behind Back Southwest Bay Southwest Corridor Park. Southwest Corridor yep. Park was great for skateboarding. Um, different parks like uh Sparrow Park. Mm. And and like all the other parks, this is where skateboarders used to hang out. So we were we saw skateboarders all the time. And one thing I and this is also I went to Boston Latin School, and Boston Latin School for those who don't know is one of the few school public schools in Boston that actually had a, a sizable white population. Mm -hmm. So that meant that I was being exposed to everything from kids who actually read um, Watchmen to kids that read Thrasher, you yeah. know, and kids that had all the skate videos and i would get on this bus forever go to their houses hang out with them and watch skate videos like skate animal chance and future primitive and all these yeah, movies that, yeah that i didn't have but the point i'm making is that i understood very early on that they were the skaters that could do amazing things like uh tony hawk a Christian Hasoy, who were the magic and bird of skaters when we were growing up. You either, like, you had to choose one. Yeah. You couldn't like both. It was like Sega versus, like, yeah, Nintendo. Yeah. But I learned that you had guys like Lance Mountain who couldn't do the tricks that those guys could do, but created a whole new aesthetic in street skating. Yeah. Something that was accessible to everybody. But the way he did it and the way he presented it and he had his own flair and style, he made everybody seem like, yo, I could do that. I might not be able to do that, 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 but I can do that. So you look at him versus a Rodney Mullen. Yeah. A person who just does incredible shit that you can never do and you just marvel at. While Rodney Mullen is the guy that you look at and is, inspires you on this level, and I'm holding my hand up to the ceiling, the same way Lance Mountain inspires you on this level, because if you look at Rodney Mullen, you'll never pick up a board. 
Yeah, it's tangible when it's someone on a, a level closer to you. And also, like, from somewhere, when I was growing up skateboarding, we looked at all these guys that we thought were the best, and most of them were in California. But there was tons of local Boston skaters, like Jamal Williams, Charlie Wilkins, mm-hmm. Vanique, like Robbie Gangemi, all these guys, Panama Dan, that weren't, yeah. maybe they weren't as good as the pros in L.A., but to us, not only were they nasty, but they were from where we were from. They were skating yeah. the same places, and it made it, progression more tangible and and it give you a drive that was different it wasn't an overwhelming drive like looking at a rotten mullet like listening to prince and being like what i could never do this fuck it Mm -hmm. you actually try to go out there dude and like it pushed you more it motivated me more you know Mm -hmm. yeah so like on that same level another aspect of skateboarding that really translated to my creative life is um landing tricks right the thing about landing a trick is that you go back in time when certain things had never been done and the only representation of the trick you saw before videos happened was seeing it in black and white or color step by step in a skating magazine (laughs) then when you saw it on video or in a movie or film you know the early 80s skate movies when you saw that trick landed you realized oh shit, this can be done yeah so that alone lets you know, hey, this can be done. So you go out and try it. Whether it takes you 15, 25, 35, 110, 150, or 250 tries, if you land a trick, you landed the trick. Yep. Now, you can't be discouraged because it took you 250 tries to land a trick because the next trick you might learn in only 20. Yep. And the next person who landed that trick in 20 might be stuck on that trick for 200 tries. True. And that's the beauty of skateboarding. And I relate that to um, creativity and art because there's certain shit I can do really, really well that I cannot do as well as somebody else, but someone else is envious of me because I can do X, Y, and Z and they can't on the same level I can. So it's a give and take and you just have to be able to accept it, you know, find what you can do well and then just do it. Yeah, like that's a great, I mean, that's a great lesson for all people in, in the realm of art. And for me, like skateboarding taught me something like pretty much akin to that is that even with guys that, you know, you have some people who are the best, maybe just because they win a lot of contests or they're the most famous pros that sold a lot of boards or just they were doing the biggest crazy shit. There were skaters who might not have been technically as good, but you wanted to watch them more because of, of, of their style, the way they did certain things, the way they dressed and shit. And like, I, I apply that to you know music, but a lot about writing for me because I'm not trying to do anything greater than anybody, but I want to write with a style that is mine. So when you read it, like if you read darts or something, you know it's this kind of style of writing, and you you know what to expect in some ways, but you also get surprises. You expect surprises, I guess, or something like that. And and, and you know, doing something different than somebody sometimes can be more impactful than trying to do it better because it distinguishes you from the rest. And it might give people a reason to listen to you, to watch you, to read you, to whatever it is. You know, you don't always have to. I mean, if you're playing fucking basketball, dude, you or any sports, you really do have to be the best. That's what statistics and shit are for, you know. But when it comes to the arts, it's always, you know, yes, there's arguments about who's the best at certain shit. But sometimes it's just how it's done, certain style, right? Like there's certain MCs that maybe their catalog isn't as crazy, but just the way they're like lazy on the beat, but it flows right. Dude, fuck, man. It just you want to listen to it more. You know yeah. What I'm saying? yeah. So like the other two aspects that like influenced my creative life were basketball and rap, you know, and 
I was well aware that there were plenty of people in the hood or cats that played street ball or played semi-pro but never made the league. But there are plenty of people in the league who got their game from these guys that yeah. never made it where they did, you know? Yeah. And then on the other side, it's like what I'm saying, like LL Cool J is a legend. You know, LL Cool J is an all-time great. But LL Cool J was a kid, looked up to two people, Silver Fox and, and Mikey Destruction, Mikey D. You know, yeah. Mikey D and Silver Fox never got the career that LL Cool J had. And when people look at LL Cool J's catalog and look at all his classics and look at everything he's pioneered in, he's an all-time great. But if you ask him, like, yeah. who were the people that, like, made, it, made him who he is, he's always going to shout out Silver Fox and Mikey D, you know? Like the reason why his hairline's fucked up is because he tried to be like Mikey D and get and get Derry Curry. He stressed his hair out. I mean, that's like I feel like that's kind of a common conundrum with some people that are very successful in their artistic fields. Like the the person who's truly the the um, maybe the inventor of certain things, or even in business, I guess, rarely gets the successful accolades that maybe some people that come after who've perfected yeah. the style with a little something extra. Maybe throwing timing as well. You know, I mean, look at like all the styles Jay-Z's borrowed from so many MCs and it's more successful than all of them, you know. Uh, I, even the greats that he's been borrowed from, like, like even Kane, who's a fucking legend. I mean, you know, there's a lot of artists like that. And, and I find like that's probably true in, in any artistic field you go in, you know, like people that mm -hmm. you look up to, you might, you know, if you're one of the greats or something you might end up outdoing them you know or, or yeah. just growing them or evolving and who knows the culture shifts at a certain time too There's yeah like societal trends like there's a saying the student can never um outshine the teacher yeah. and i'm like that's not necessarily true you know because you look at jay-z jay-z comes up under the jazz yep and then after the jazz, he goes with Big Daddy Kane. Big Daddy Kane brings oh, yeah. him out on tour. Yeah. Him and Sauce Money out on tour, you know? Yeah. But then Jay-Z becomes the guy, you know? Yeah. Like, and who does he have on his roster? Jazz. Yeah. And who he, I've seen the same thing happen to Kane. He shouts yeah. out Big Daddy Kane in his video. You know, like, it happens. And it's like, I explain to people like this. If you think you're great at something and you want to mentor someone, make sure you want someone to be better than you. Yeah. Like that's the mark of someone great. You mentor someone and want them to be better than you. I want anyone I mentor to be so much better than me that they have to remind yeah. the world I existed. Yeah. You know, like Bruce Lee, everyone knows Bruce Lee. And he will tell you, he told the world, the man who trained me is Ip Man. Yeah. You know, and now there's, four pictures about Ip Man yeah. and TV shows about Ip Man. Why? Because Bruce Lee told the world about Ip Man, even though he was pretty much only known like in China and Asia, you know? He was the leader of a faction of a style of Kung Fu that was at the bottom of the totem pole, you know? Versus the other types. Like, Bruce Lee was part of a street gang that had Kung Fu fights, you know what I'm saying? Like, if I, when I tell you, Jake, when I was a kid, in Boston, South End, Lower Roxbury, into Chinatown, went to the Quincy, we had a game called Baddest Man in Hong Kong. Now, what was that game about? We, because at that time, 84, 85, kids started shooting each other because it's the crack era. 
So kids didn't fight anymore hand-to-hand because if you lost in a hand-to-hand fight, you might have to shoot somebody to keep your respect. That's how weird shit got. And we were older kids. We were born in 75, 74. So we were like, yo, we want to keep it so that we can actually fight. But we're going to fight each other. So we had a kiddie fight club. And what we used to do is challenge each other. And we had a group of like 10 kids, 12 kids, 16 kids later. And we would have this round robin tournament where we would all fight each other, inspired by um, Jackie Chan and the Seven Famous Fortunes or My Lucky Stars, if you follow those movies. Jackie Chan, uh, uh, Yin Bao. So we're talking about, um, uh, damn, what's, what's the, the fat dragon? What's his name? Sammo um, Hung. And um, like all those guys, right? So we were inspired by them. So we would fight each other for years to keep each other sharp. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's like that. But we, we, we discovered later on, somebody uh, translated an interview that Jackie Chan did talking about his days fighting Samuel Hung and Yen Bao, where they were inspired by Bruce Lee to fight each other to try to be the baddest man in Hong Kong. The man who had the title baddest man in Hong Kong before he left Hong Kong was Bruce Lee for years. And they said, we realized it was stupid because we would fight each other and we had different styles and we would all beat each other. So at some point, we were all the baddest man of Hong Kong for like a week, a week, a week, until we realized, let's hang this shit up and just say that Bruce Lee is forever the baddest man in Hong Kong, you know? So I equate that to like styles where you're always chasing this, this thing where you want to be the best, to be the greatest, yeah. but at some point you realize you don't need it anymore. You're yeah. you now. You know, you've done enough on your own and let other people chase you. Yeah, it's a way, that's a really good way to put it right there. I mean, especially like as you get a little older too or deeper into your crafts, the importance of what it means to you can kind of shift and change too, you know? I, I mean, sometimes when you're younger, it's, it's about, I don't know, finding an identity and then it's maybe proving to yourself to others, but which is really just proving yourself to yourself. And, mm. and sometimes it becomes about just stability, longevity, and then it's just like pretty you love what you're doing. You just want to keep playing the game, for lack of a better phrase, you know, and, mm-hmm. and doing it well continuously, which means staying in. Like if it's a physical thing, take good care of your body. But if it's something like music or art or whatever, you just keep working at your craft. You just don't get rusty. You know, you don't take that time off. If you're a comedian, you stay on the stage. Musician, you stay mm-hmm. in the lab. Writer, you stay writing, you know. Mm-hmm. What, I mean... Uh, for for those who don't know Dart, like plug your your books too, man, because Dart is like an incredible writer, great writer. So my first book book is uh, Best Damn Hip Hop Writing: The Book of Dart, which is available right now. It's on Amazon. It's on Walmart. It's at Barnes and Noble. It's at like you go on the Libris, you'll find it in like twelve different places. It's available on um. Rakuten Kobo, which I didn't know existed until two months ago when people told me that the, the numbers were high. How'd you get into like, Walmart, bro? I didn't even know Walmart had books. I got to call my publisher. Yeah, yeah I didn't know either. Until someone told me, it's like, someone told me, like, dude, they sold out of your books at Walmart. I was like, <laughs> That's they have crazy. my books at Walmart? Shit. Yeah. I didn't even know they had books straight up and down. I don't go into yeah. the Walmarts, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I didn't know either. Until people were telling me that, like, yo, I went to this, I ordered your book from a Walmart, and they held it for me, and I went and got it. And I'm like, what? So, yeah, it's, like, all over the place. It's selling it's a great book. very I well. Love I love it. Thanks. It's selling really well for an independent book about rap 
full of essays and person and personal shit. It's like, huh? So yeah, that that, that was a surprise. Wow. But you know, other than that, I have you know the medium, which a lot of stuff on the medium is going to end up in future books, the Book of Dark too. Uh, then I have the podcast Dart Against Humanity, and then the Boston Legends podcast, and I'm working on two more. One of them got halted by you know the COVID outbreak, and the other one is in development right now. Those are po- two more podcasts or books. Well, one of them that's in development was going to be a podcast leading into a series. Mm. You know, because the thing is that like what the COVID outbreak did was it pushed back a whole lot of people's books that were already about to come out. Yeah. So deals coming up now, the the uh, the economics are all fucked up. Yeah. For anybody who's trying to get signed and want to make put out a book coming up after them, you know? Like I was talking to like a literary agent for the longest time and the process took so long that like if they had been on board immediately, I would be fucked by this and my book would be halted. But <sighs> thank God they fucking beat around the bush or whatever and you know what I'm saying, took their sweet ass time because now I have a book that I'm writing on my own that I might just self-release. It's called um, Nightwork, you know? It's gonna be a, a, a mini, it's gonna be a short semi-autobiographical book. And it's set between, um, the time period is after the dot-com bubble burst. So like after March 2000, but before 9-11 happens. And it's a unique time in history that, that if you're a Gen Xer, you experienced and a lot of shit happened, but no one's written about, no one's made a book about, no one's made a film about. And I'm going to be the first person to that, in that territory. Hell yeah. It's copywritten right now, so nobody can fucking steal that. He, it's, he, literally, that's the law. I know the laws. Like, it's there's the laptop right there, with, and here's the notes, so. <laughs> it's, I, I've been doing like a lot of writing in this time. I, I think you probably have gotten people to say the same thing, like, oh man, you must be writing a lot during the, 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 the whatever, the time. Like, because, you know, people are quarantined or locked down or isolated or whatever the fuck the nomenclature of the day is. But, uh, mm. like, for me, like, I, I, I sit down, I do the work, right? That's what you're supposed to do, whatever your craft is. But I definitely have my inspiration, no matter what artistic output it is, it's always in waves. I sit down and can do the busy work, but, like, sometimes huge creative waves come, sometimes they don't. So like, there's been a lot of time during this where I've I've just been banging out on the computer. Then days and days and days where I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like my best work always comes naturally. Um, that's the way. That to me, that's the way only way to do it. I yeah. think a lot of people try to force it. Yeah, and I I have to use a really crude analogy to make people understand crude. why that's bad. Uh, it's like going to the bathroom. Oh, this is crude. You don't. Try to force yourself to take a shit if you don't have to. You get a hernia. Exactly. It's stupid, too. When you got to go, you go. If it's a quick one, it's quick. If it's one of those ones you're going to hold on for dear God and sweat and take your shirt off and wonder how you survived it, after it's over, it'll be worth it. You know what I'm saying? But you never try to force it. There are some people that can do that on a schedule. They can just... Write 10 pages, write yeah. 10 pages, write 10 pages. I can't do that shit. I could sit down and bang out 50 pages, not write shit for a week, live my life, come back, do another 20 pages, sleep. I rarely sleep, but yeah, sleep. Yeah, and then come back, do 15 more pages, and then leave the shit alone for a week. So it's like, 
as long as it gets done, that's all that matters. And then after I read it back and I do like the edits or whatever, if I get done, that's all that matters to me, man. All, all that matters is you getting crap past the finish line. I don't care if you do the fucking kick worm. I don't care if you run backwards. I don't care if you do the fucking snake like Janet Jackson all the way down, as long as you pass the finish line. Man. No, it's true, man. And, and I don't like putting, see, I mean, I'm only written for myself, like, you know, for putting out books and things like, you've done a lot of journalistic work, which has deadlines that are a little sharper. Yeah. I don't like putting a deadline too much on my creativity. Um, mm. Is it harder, like, when you're not writing, like, the book shit, but, like, when you've got to write a piece for some um, some media outlet or something like that, you got a strict deadline? Yeah, so what I do, I cheat. Um, so I'm showing you this table, right? And it has notes upon notes upon notes upon it. notes. I see. So it, one of these has a list, and on it is a list. So what I do is I do everything about six months ahead of time. So one of my favorite superhero of all time is Batman. And Batman's the greatest superhero of all time because Batman creates scenarios that may or may not happen in the future and plans for them. So the saying is Batman can beat anybody with enough prep time. And the joke is there's always prep time for Batman because Batman prepped for shit that may or may not happen. Yeah. So if it happens, you're like, oh, Batman's fucked. No, Batman already thought of this shit two years ago and has been preparing for it, the eventuality, right? I say that to say six months ahead of time, I make a list of all the upcoming dates, times, albums, mm -hmm. events. So I already know what to, re I start researching now. I start getting together stuff now for six months later. So I'm never on a deadline. And what happens is no one ever hits me to write something. I present to them and I don't pitch. I say, yo, I got this piece about this upcoming project, uh, this album, it's the 20th, 25th, 30th, 15th anniversary, and here it is. And they're like, oh shit, we'll run this because nobody's presented that to them yet because I'm ahead of them. And they're like, yo, we'll pay you however much. I'm like, yeah, cool. Smart, dude. Yeah. So I'm never on a deadline. And after I send that thing in, I'm already working on the next two things. So, and it took me a while to figure that out because I hated, because when I first started writing for money in a space, someone would hit me and be like, yo, um, the 15th anniversary of this album's coming up. Can you have 1500 words in this time? And I always felt pressed. And when I did it and wrote it and people liked it, I didn't like it because I felt like I was being rushed and I could have done a much better job mm -hmm. of uh, putting together words, researching, what have you. So I said, I'm never going to put myself in a fucking situation again. I'm going to dictate to the market rather than have someone put upon me. Dude, smart Adams, dude. Dude, I'm going to call you like the fucking literary Bruce Wayne. That's like a real, <laughs> that's a real ill game plan, dude. Like, I don't even, I don't know if I could fathom like how to approach writing like things like that. Like the only shit I've written and published is, is like personal shit, which I, I can't mentally just like force out, you know, especially if yeah. there's certain things, I'm sure you've written down certain things and you're like, you know what, man, I'm never putting this out. Boom, like delete it or just scrap it all together, you know, and just even to think about trying to push that shit out when you're not ready, even if it's done, but you're not, you know, the piece hasn't sat with you or you haven't sat with it long enough. You don't really know how mm -hmm. it feels. Cause you know, like sometimes you might make some music, you might paint a painting or you might write something that feels good. It feels right. 
And then you get your fresh eyes on it two, three weeks later, a month later, and you're like, what the fuck was I thinking? You know? Yeah. Like, I, I it pushed a personal thing out on a deadline would probably trip me out, you know? Um, yeah. Maybe if it was just analytical shit that's not really pertaining to my personal life, I could do it more. But I mean, have you ever, like, dude, this is like weird. I don't even know why this struck my thought. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where, anything ever you said on like a podcast or written or even just on like social media, like you're like, man, not, not like regret it. Like you, you feel bad or like you want to apologize, but just like, you don't agree with it anymore. Like on your own. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. a weird one, dude. That's a weird one for me. Like when that happens to me lately, cause I'm just so, like, fuck. it's funny because one of them actually appeared in my book. Which one do you not like out of the book or don't agree with anymore? What, which um, so, so fun fact. I didn't choose uh, the Nicki Minaj piece to be in my book. Who the uh, editor or the publisher? The, the publisher put it in. And the reason is because what happened is I, uh, so Mass Appeal archived all my um, pieces for Knowledge Darts. And I picked several pieces from Knowledge Darts, like maybe 20 for the book. And what happened is they got through three or four and Mass Appeal shut down the archive and wiped it. So they couldn't go back and pick up any more pieces. So they had to fill in blanks. And what they did was they already had some pieces earmarked that I didn't choose. And one of them being the Nicki Minaj piece. And they put it in the book. I didn't see it until the book was printed. Oh, now, wow. Wow. Yeah. So Shit. I, I and, and the backstory behind that is I wrote a piece, my first ever um, paid piece. I was approached by, and I was really happy about this at the time, 2010, I was approached by AOL Black Voices, which was a name. Nobody remembers the shit anymore. It's called BVX. And they were like, hey, Mr. Adams, uh, we like your writing, and we would like for you to write a piece for us, and we'll pay you this much. At the time, the rate was $125, which is 2010, was a lot of money for somebody who went a long time writing for free. Yeah. And I was like, word. And they were like, so this is this many words and have it in by this. I fucking wrote that shit in my sleep. But the thing is that I figured since they read my writing, they knew me from Twitter, they understood my voice. Now yeah. at the time, I was super angry <laughs> with everybody. At, uh, I can't think of a better term, but dick writing. <laughs> on the internet and Twitter because Nicki Minaj's uh, P, uh, album was going to be huge and like there was this big push and it wasn't really organic and MTV did a special for her and I was just like, yo, this shit is fake as fuck, right? So I was angry about this and thinking about all the women in hip hop and independent rappers that I thought were incredible who would go to record labels and just get laughed out the door or or sure, you know, like pushed out the door and told why they wouldn't sell. And I'm like, all these women who are miles better, made better material, uh, have better careers, and Nicki Minaj pretty much comes up through the, like, the mainstream circuit and gets her look. And the sad part is that once Nicki gets on, it's not like it's going to open the floodgates for women. That's what they were trying to make it seem like. It's like, they're not going to open the floodgates for women. They're only going to bring in women that have the appeal that Nikki does. And one at a time, too. You can never and have only one at a time. Three or four. So I was pissed off when I wrote that article. And I wrote, 
the article was called the rap game ain't shit but barbie's dream house that was the name of the article i submitted they say nothing to me they posted they changed the title they erased several passages almost whole paragraphs so when i post it on facebook for my family and everyone to see i read the article and i'm like this ain't even what i wrote so i email um aol and i'm like yo delete that shit, take it off whatever but you still owe me money they were supposed to pay me 125 dollars and up paying me 75. so i'm so mad that i take that piece right a even longer angrier version and post it to my tumblr yeah. and that's the fucking article that they put in the book i never wanted that to see the light of day i regretted writing that piece about a year later i had a conversation with at the time um so uh kathy yandley i had a conversation with her about that piece Who's back that? in 2000 huh who is she uh so she's a writer of uh, amazing writer she's written books with prodigy the um the uh the commissary kitchen oh she's, okay. uh, yeah yeah, work, yeah yeah she's worked with uh books okay. dream hampton on decoded uh, you know, she has an incredible book out now uh, about women in hip hop. Like it's like a bestseller, you know, but matter of fact, I'm going to find the title as I'm talking because I can walk. But the thing is that we had a talk and I realized that that article came from a really bad place and I was angry and I wasn't really, you know, in the right space. It's called God Save the Queens okay. by Kathy Yandley. So, um. I wasn't in the right space writing that book. I mean, writing that article. And I was like, you know what? I'm glad it's on my Tumblr where it can stay buried and I'll never bring it up again. And then I get my book and there it is. And I never, and I was really, that's the one piece I wish never was in the book. And that's the one piece I probably regret the most. And I wanted it to be replaced by a piece that I wrote about, um, uh, uh, watch the throne it's called um it was called uh watch the throne but mind the gap and i, I broke that. down i remember that yeah i got in a lot of trouble I for that. Like that album so i, I got I, a, really... I got i got in a lot of trouble for that wow um def jam def jam pretty much made me persona non grata after i did that piece and it got a lot of a lot of traffic on a fucking tumblr me t make, writing my personal problems with the Watch Your Throne album at a time everybody was just kissing its ass. Ooh, so that's going to be in the Book of Dark too, definitely. Oh yeah, because because that has to happen. That album, dude. Like I is not not to go on a tangent or nothing, but like definitely not a great album that I've revisited at any point. Not even when I first no. played it, did I care much for it. It felt like actually Chris Farone, a fellow writer, person that you yes. and I both know. Chris, Chris wrote uh, a review of my like last solo album back in like 2012, and he said something like, "If like Watch the Throne, Watch the Throne is like the the one percent rap. Like Jake's Jake's album, The Last Days, is like the 99 percent rap or some shit. Just because, it, what? Not to talk about my album, more to just speak about what Watch the Throne was like. The, it was like two super rich billionaire successful dudes, not at their creative apexes, and also just rapping about like." buying shit that like it was a time like come on like the whole album was like that minus maybe one song 
I don't, and it just made you feel like, I get it, you're a billionaire, a millionaire. Yes. Just like, yes. I get it, dude. I called it let the meat cake wrap. Yeah, that's perfect. That's a perfect way to describe it, bro. I hated it. I said, the world's on fire right now, and we yeah. need protest music. Yeah, and what you this did was like Occupy was, Wall Street time and shit. Yeah. And I was like, what you pretty much did was make music for the people that are in the palace. Yeah, dude. Like, we'd enjoy that. We're, we're fucking screaming for bread, and we're fucking, and, and the world is crumbling around us, and you made this shit, like, it's aspirational. Yeah, man. Like, I, and, you know, then they get, like, one song that Hip Boy makes on there that becomes big, and, like, you get it played at every fucking, uh, you know, NBA arena and shit like that, and then, like... And every movie, every movie trailer has it. Yeah, and then people just forget about the rest of the album uh, and what it was or really what it wasn't. And, I, I mean, dude, that album, to me, like, it was just a, a skippable moment in music, dude. Absolutely. I, I don't, I, I'm glad we got the nerd out about how much we both don't like that album on here. <laughs> Someone told me once, it's like, you tell him about a lot of things you don't like. I was like, I like shit too, motherfucker. I like a lot of shit, but it's funnier and more interesting. And I think you can actually learn more about a person by what they don't like or don't agree with sometimes than just by what they like. Exactly. I, to me, it goes hand in hand. I critique everything, even the things I love. I go through them with a fine-tooth comb to try to figure out what didn't work and what was it about it that made me overlook the thing that didn't work so I didn't care as much. Yeah. Or what's, you know, to, so as a writer, as a creative, that's the one thing that gets me. Or I try to figure out the formula for why this worked. Perfect example. A flawed but great film is, um, uh, ooh, ooh, ooh. A flawed but great film is The Social Network, right? Great film, great dialogue, fantastic pacing. Women's roles are pretty much non-existent. They're just there for, for, for dressing, right? I don't even However, remember a little piece of dialogue by a woman in that movie. Exactly. However, same writer, same pacing, same idea, same presentation. Fast forward to um, Molly's Game. Have you seen Molly's Game? That's the one where, like, well, uh, what's the woman's name, dude? Um, Jessica Chastain. Yeah, she's like, it's a, she runs an illegal gambling operation. Yes. No, I'm familiar yes. with the story, but I don't I know the movie, no. So, Molly's Game, imagine um, as great as um, the social network is, multiply it by five, and it's led by women. And it's the best role I've seen for Idris Elba. Like, he kills it, but they give him gold, right? It's a fucking amazing movie. First time I watched it, I watched it again. Oh, man. And then I talked about it on Twitter. Then I watched it again. And I was just like, this shit is so good. The way it, the storytelling, the way it, like, layers everything. I love but, it. Like, when you find some shit that you actually are fucking naturally in love with, you know, a piece yes. of art that you naturally yes. love. And surprised by, maybe. But the reason why I love it so much is because I am so critical that I'm looking for things that are they're looking for the flaws, you know? Yeah. So, like, that's what people don't understand about people that always talk. There are people that only talk about things they hate because they can't find things they love. Then yeah. there are people that are critical that love things, but 
they can't turn their analytical brain off. Yeah, and that that's a good point because if you're analytical, it's not just like critiquing, you know, music or movies or books you don't like. You're looking at the whole fucking world like that. Like exactly, at, including yourself. Yeah, oh, probably yourself more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And you know that, that that's that comes down to you know people being hard on yourself, especially if you're a creative. It goes hand in hand. You're very critical of what you're doing. I mean, I'm critical of what happens out here socially, politically. A lot of the writing I do is is critical of my own life but then also things in society that i would gripe about maybe on social media in a joking manner but i I can't not see that and be like that's fucking bullshit that's why like honestly like certain formats like music and shit for me might not have been the best outlet because it doesn't really allow for you to to be that critical of things out there without catching so much hate but if you're on a radio show a podcast you write books or articles you can kind of fucking be analytical and actually people kind of like your perspective they think it's funny or they respect it or it's a breath of fresh air it took me a little while to find a place where I could actually put that part of my voice out there. Um, mm-hmm. And honestly, dude, I would have like a dream job always would have been a movie critic. Like, oh yeah, open that a bed, dude. It's still I. One of my favorite all-time jobs, and I had plenty, and they, they were all in the same area during the, the stretch between 1998 and like 2000. You tell I me worked, you were a movie critic. I'm gonna kill myself out of disappointment. No, dart. I'll never. Be I worked. I worked at the uh, Lowe's Theater Sherry. The Sherry Theater. I was talking about yeah. it yesterday. Smoking yeah. a lot of weed in that movie. Yeah. It's now worked... the fucking bowling alley, right? Or used yes, to it is. Yes, it is. Can't so be. I used to work there in uh, 99. I worked there in 99. So as, lo- as, as many of you know, um, there was the Columbine Massacre, right? And after the Columbine massacre, a lot of movies got delayed because they couldn't put them out after that because they had violence, violence that antisocial behavior. Trench coats, no trench coats allowed. Yes. So one of the movies that got pushed back was one of my all-time favorite movies, which I saw while I was working at the movie theater, and that was um, uh, Fight Club. Fight Club. I went to the theater, worked at the theater, sold tickets to Fight Club. People walked out the theater. The first showing for Fight Club, 33% of the audience walked out the movie. Why? Because of what? It's like the overt masculine fighting aspects? It wasn't what they thought it was based on the trailers. And they never read the book. Well, yeah. So they, they thought it was something completely different. And when it was this really, really like, like sub- there was a lot of stuff going on that they didn't, they were not prepared for. Yeah, there's levels to that movie that you know that you might not have even thought about. Yeah, with the first viewing. Yes, exactly. It took multiple viewings to really get to um, everything, and so I was there for that, right? But at the same time, working at the movie theater, I saw like how people reacted to movies when they first came out. I saw people walk out of random hearts. <laughs> I don't even know what that is. Exactly. It was, a, a, it was a movie. Jennifer it was a movie. In that? It was a movie with Harrison Ford and Kristen Scott Thomas. Oh. It was terrible. Yeah. And everyone went to it thinking it was going to be a love story. And when they walked out the theater, we were just handing them real sorries, the real sorry tickets. We just handed everybody who walked out the theater real sorry tickets to see a free movie. That's how bad it was. Wow. And, um, and then, oh, oh, oh. Waking the Dead. Oh, dude, oh. yeah. Oh, God. Wait, so bringing that, out the dead, the one, the, the bringing out the dead, bringing out the dead, bringing out the dead was a really stylistic movie 
and it wasn't for everybody, but sitting in the theater watching it, the first movie I, I saw working there was Stigmata. You know? Stigmata? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So like I got to be there, give the, I sold tickets. So it was the um the night uh the, the closing usher, right? At the end of my time there. So I'm selling tickets to all the uh critics. And I'm talking to them about movies and Hollywood and what's happening. Oh, favorite all-time story. I was there for the screening of um, American Beauty. Oh, shit. The Boston screening of American Beauty. Annette Benning couldn't make it because she found out she was pregnant. Uh, the infamous Kevin was he, there. He was there for sure. He loves me. He was there. I talked to Thora Birch for two hours before not knowing who the fuck she was. <laughs> I thought Thora Birch had blonde hair and I didn't realize that she had grown up. So I didn't know I was talking to her. I thought she worked for the studio. I thought she worked for like DreamWorks, whatever the studio was, because she was with like two, there were two women from DreamWorks already around her. I didn't know they were her handlers. So I told the story on Twitter and like people kept calling me. I was like, hey, after it was over, she left or whatever. She said bye to me. And um, people were calling me over to the, uh, the, uh, where the, the concession stand. Yeah. And they were like, yo, yo, you lucky son of a bitch. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yo, you just like, you just spent the whole night talking to Thora Birch. Like, what does she smell like? And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? That's not Thora Birch. Thora Birch is like this tall and blonde. It's like, dude, she's a, she grew up. She's this old now. You were talking to her. I was like, no, I wasn't. And somebody was like, and one of the managers is dude, Tim. He's like, come with me. So he walks me into the theater, opens the door and points at the screen. And there she is on screen. And I'm like, oh shit. It's like you were talking to her all night and everybody at the concession stand was like, how the fuck is he doing that? Like, what's going on right now? It's magic. Yeah. And I was just like, God damn it. I blew it. Anyway, so like that, that was like, but I, I learned a lot about film and how film is made and how it's received. And also I found out that a lot of the executives who were there promoting the film were disgusted by it and appalled by the things in it. And I was like, didn't they see it? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's funny that they were disgusted by the things of that movie. And then like Kevin Spacey's whole situation comes out 20 yeah. years later. Hey, yo, I, I'm going to say something that people are going to say, Jake the Snake, you're fucking lying. No way, no way. Dude, I put this on my grandfather's grave on dogs. Whatever you need to hear that know this statement is sacred. <clears throat> always, not even going to say about anybody else, but always with Kevin Spacey. I've always had a weird thing with that motherfucker. I always thought he was weird as shit. There's a movie... I think one of the Baldwin's was in it where him and like, they live in LA, they're in yeah. Hollywood, and they're like roommates. And it's like- Eight heads in a duffel bag or, or, remember, dude, or things to do in Denver while you're dead or some shit. I don't know. It sounds like one of those late nineties movies. He was a shithead in that. And I was always like, you know what, man, there's something about this motherfucker. He just, in interviews too, he always seemed like really dismissive and like, like, like he was like intellectually superior people. Wait, I was like, this motherfucker he, looks like- Are you talking about Hurley Burley? Maybe it's Hurley Burley, dude. Is that where they're roommates in Hollywood? They live in like a baller kind of nice I crib. think it's Hurley Burley because everybody had the same thing. 
happened when they saw it. He struck. He always struck me as like not that it matters, but like when he came out that he was gay, people were like, "Oh wow, he's gay." I was like, "Motherfuckers, I'm pretty sure he was gay since back then." Not that it has any impact on the fact that he's just a creepy ass dude. And I exactly. felt like that. Seven, granted, he plays a serial killer, <laughs> but like, fucking right. dude, Kaiser Soze ass limping motherfucker. I always had this thing with him. I was like, man. And then he came out with his shit, and I was like, that's creepy ass motherfucker, dude. Yep. Now he's fucked. And it's crazy because, like, at that night, he was like uh, pretty much the focal point because of course, and that bending time. Yeah, Annette Benning wasn't there. And the same night, oh, well, this was crazy about this, Jake. The same night was the night that uh, the Patriots played the Jets and they were supposed to get stomped, but Vinny Testaverde got injured and the Patriots ended up winning. And also the same night was like the Emmys. <laughs> so like everything was happening the same night. It's like an intense Sunday evening. Yeah, yeah. And the thing was that like nobody had like, of uh, smartphones back then so they had to like call someone in the office or call someone in front of a tv to find out what was going on oh, it was a crazy day good old day crazy day didn't, but he, yeah. didn't kevin spacey win a goddamn fucking oscar for that movie too i believe he, won, he beat out he won fucking denzel for a hurricane dude i've never cried in a movie i cried watching the hurricane when i was that young like and then this creepy ass fucking dude, Kevin Spacey, beats him out for a goddamn Oscar for that shit. Yeah. Denzel is owed at least two or three Oscars by the uh, Academy, Motion Picture Academy. He won two, and they were great movies, but the ones he didn't win that he was nominated for, and then the ones that he didn't even get nominated for, like yeah. Oak the Blues. Uh, I don't even, did he even get nominated for Malcolm for X? Yeah, he did, but he lost, which was insane. I mean, the, the way that movie's been treated by Hollywood is a goddamn crime. That is one, that's in my opinion, the best biopic, and I'm very anti-biopics. Mm -hmm. um, I thought that movie was, like, in terms of adapting from a book, granted it's like a, a, a book of nonfiction, and it's a longer movie, dude, it flows fucking so good. It but, does. Yeah, the Spike Lee's, that's my favorite Spike Lee movie, you know, most people go with something like, do the right thing, which is right up there. But over the years for me, man, X just like, it's, it doesn't ever feel long. It's just, and man, damn, Denzel fucking kills it. Like how he didn't win yeah. a goddamn Oscar for that is a crime, dude. Yeah, that, that's the one that gets me. He got screwed on a few. Um, but you know what the coolest thing about like, uh, not the coolest thing about it, but like when I, when I watch movies, I don't know, do you ever like, like maybe you do like, you have that critical mind, but like I picture myself sometimes like writing reviews and shit, like like a yeah. lot more formal than the way I talk about a movie. But you know, like you know, I've always I've always dreamt about that job, dude. That would have been the shit. But uh, a couple of times for years, what ended up happening with me was people would write scripts and dialogue and send it to me and tell me, "Does this dialogue work?" and why it doesn't. Because you and were then I would give to them, see how it flowed or what? Yes. And I would give them notes. And I'd have them watch movies or give them, like, homework assignments to make them understand how dialogue should work better and, like, how different people write dialogue mm. and how this dialogue sounds like you saw this film and you just decided to copy it. I was uh, like, you can't do that. You know? Point. Yeah. Because there are certain TV shows a perfect example, right? I don't know if you watched this show. So uh, there was a movie called uh, Skate Kitchen that came out in 2018. 
again, there was a wave of skate movies that came out uh, mid '90s. Skate Kitchen, uh, a whole bunch of other other ones. You go back to Paranoid Park. What's up, Rockers? All those. The joints, Paranoid right? Park was great, dude. Paranoid Gus Park. Was and what's up, Rockers was great too. Both of those. Yeah. But like, you watch that movie, and you're like, oh, this is dope. They should adapt this into a TV show. Like it's because once it ends, it's like it's like hour forty five minutes or some shit, right? But once it's over, you're like, yo, there's more to this world. There's more to this group of girls. There's more to their life skating in New York. You know, it's a skate park, always having to deal with douchebag dudes and having to deal with parents that you know don't understand gender roles and everything mm -hmm. else and all this other shit. I was like, there's a lot here. So HBO adapted a show called Betty, and the show is fucking is a fucking mess. I never even heard of that show, dude. Yeah, they're not promoting it. But the <laughs> show is a mess, right? Compared to the movie. And I kind of spent the last two days watching the movie again, figuring out what works for the movie and why isn't it working for the series when you have so much more time to plan things out. That's interesting. Yeah, and I like figured out basically what it is, is they're focusing on the wrong per person. They're trying to make them do too much. Some people should just be skating and just interjecting. And some people should be the focal point because that's what happened in the movie. And another reason why the movie worked is because in key places you had professional actors working. So you had um, one of the moms who everybody knows from like New York Undercover and um, Orange is the New Black. And then you have like a dude who's playing the dad who's a professional actor. But then you had Jaden, then you had Jaden Smith and another one of the principal roles, right? It's like a love interest. And that made the fucking film work. And then you go and watch the HBO show and it's like, where are the professional actors? You know? And you're focusing on the wrong people because yeah. they they can't carry the show. So if you're watching it, you're like, this shit is a mess. Dart, you know how like, you know, they always say the book's always better than the movie. Yeah. Any movie that's better than the book. Debbie Does Dallas. <laughs> Rhea. That's a good Debbie Does Dallas is way better than the book. I didn't know it was a book. I didn't know that was a book. Way better than the book. It's a real book and you fuck with me. I'm joking. Okay. See, dude, I don't know. You might have some literary prowess that's far superior. I don't know if there's a book that old. So, uh, <laughs> is there a film that's better than the book? Yeah. Um, so... I've been thinking about this for like six months and I can't come if, up with If we mind. talk about like literature, it's, I can't really think of many. It's usually the other way around. If we're talking yeah, about like, always the thing. if we're talking about comic books and graphic novels, that's another, uh, another area entirely. Is there a comic book, a graphic novel movie that's better than the actual graphic novel of comic book? I'd say yes, right? Because yeah. some things, worked better on screen than it did on paper on paper and some things you could get into easier um in terms of like tv series i kind of feel like for the audience the umbrella academy if you've never read any of the graphic novels i felt like if you watch it it's completely fucking unadaptable on television but if you watch the show and then you watch to read the books. You're like, what the fuck? You know, like, really? Like, like some of the stuff they said in the show, you thought they were joking. 
like they turned them into like uh, stories they told the kids, right? And then you read the books and you're like, what? But there are so many uh, films that are adapted from graphic novels and TV shows that are god awful that you might as well just read the graphic novel. Yeah, definitely. Like, like there's a, a huge list. I think that um, what Watchmen did, the TV show on HBO that adapted to the modern times yeah. and touched on modern themes, surpassed. Yeah. What the original Watchmen did. But yeah. if you look at the Watchmen movie, I think that the only way to watch the Watchmen movie is you have to watch the extended version with Under the Hood and um, Tales of the Black Freighter included. And I think most people would tap out. That's like four hours of watching. I, you know, I long viewing times never fucking bothers me. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Some people like freak out if they see two hours in the thing. Like, especially yeah. if you're watching at home, dude. There's no excuse you could possibly. But I'll sit in a movie theater for fucking three hours, dude. You know? Yeah. So it never really, that never really bothered me. Um, so like, I wonder what's the longest movie I went to the theaters to see. Let's put it this way. I was, to give you an idea how weird of a kid I was, back in 1984, my family wanted to go out to the movies. And they were like, all right, we're going to go to the movie theater. We're going to see a movie. They were going to see Ghostbusters. I'm like, I want to I want to see Ghostbusters. I want to see Once Upon a Time in America. Ooh, you son of a yeah. bitch, Sergio yeah. Leone. Fine I'm, piece. I'm, yeah. I'm eight. I'm eight going on nine. Dude, that's a like, movie, bro. Yeah. And they're like, we're not going to see Once Upon a Time in America. Are you insane? So we're going to go see Ghostbusters. You're going to love it. I go see Ghostbusters. I love it. But I'm walking out and I'm like, so can we come back and see Once Upon a Time in America? Yeah, you wanted to see those crazy fucking opium den scenes, the two rape scenes with De Niro, Joe Pesci crushing it as a fucking ill mob boss with a small woman. And what's insane is when I finally did see that movie, I was like, oh, now I get why they didn't want to take me to see that. But also I was like, I need to own this fucking movie. It's so, it's so good. It's, it, I, I, I rewatched it like a year ago and it, it got better with me with, with time too, you know? Mm-hmm. Searching yeah. the old movies, like, I don't know, the visual depth I really dig. And, and, mm-hmm. and that's like his first real, like, crime drama that's not in the old West times. I don't know. I thought it was dope, man. That 1920s, 30s New York City vibes. Fucking yeah. great, man. I mean, I'm, I'm all for the long watches, man. I'm, I've, been, I've been re-watching old movies lately and re-reading mm-hmm. books that I've read before. Like, do you re-read books often? Yeah, all the time. Uh, the books I reread the most are... Uh, so there's three books I reread the most. I have one that I'm going to uh, show you, right? This one. Joan Didion, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. I love the way this woman writes. Uh, I, I just, I read some of the stuff she writes, the way she presents everything, and it just makes me feel like, yo, I'll never be this good. Another book I read a lot is, um, uh, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Fahrenheit 451 is a book I read a lot. Another book I've read till it's dog-eared is, I've mentioned it before, Piri Thomas, um, Down These Main Streets. And I also read, like, I'll go back. I stole a lot of books from Boston Latin School from when I was a kid. And the ones I stole the, the most were, like, Shakespeare books. So I would read Hamlet and Macbeth a lot. 
Yeah. Because the way they flow, and here's another secret that a lot of people don't understand, right? In the Boston public school system, they would they would teach uh, Shakespeare, and people would have trouble getting it, right? Because they didn't understand the references, they didn't understand the like the context, and there were a lot of allusions to things that they'd never explained, right? And I was like, why did people not understand it? If when you open up the book, the notes are right there in the fucking book, right? And then I went to a pub, I went to English, and when I read their version of Macbeth and and Twelfth Night and everything, I was like, yo, where are the notes? Where are the notes in the book? And then it hit me. At Boston Latin School, we got a completely different version of the books that gave us all the background information and gave us a leg up on everybody else. So I told you, this was written in the first folio, and this is this, and this is here, and this is these are stage directions, and this, this is a, um, a play on word from this, and this references this person, and like, one page has the play, the next page has the explanation for everything on the other page. Ah, I and, and I was like, yo, it's like that? I realize how fucking rigged the game is. Yeah, the dichotomy of the educational system right there in Boston under a microscope right there, too. Yeah, so, like, and so I stole all those books and like someone will like be reading a Shakespeare book to me and I'm like, hold on, and I go, to my crates in my closet, and I hand them the version I had in Latin. And they're reading it, and they're like, this explains everything. Dude, you like, you like deciphered the code, dude. And you also yeah. did something few people do, is steal books. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's not that the only old thing is gonna hide something from somebody, put it in a book, because people never, like, I mean, you could, even trying to sell books, like, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm put, I got a book coming out, like, the selling that is harder than selling anything and, or, or getting people to read it. So I imagine when those books went a, a missing, maybe they didn't even notice for a few days. Easy crime, dude. It's like stealing, yeah. stealing some shit that they noticed way too down the line, dude. You're like, yeah. off with a backpack full of, did you have them like in your shirt, on your waistband? Like, you can't stick a book down your pant leg. What did you come in here for the night, like the Isabella Gardner Museum and just come down the ceiling? <laughs> Thomas so Craft funny, all them books. What's funny is the edition of those Shakespeare books are really small, but they're hardcover. So they're like this big. They're about, they're barely the size of, of my iPhone, uh, my iPhone XR, right? So they're small. So I would just like, just steal. I would just take them and I'll just put them in my bag. And when I got home, like at the end of the school year, I would just pour out books onto my bed. And like my no, mom like, would come by, yeah. My mom would come by, and she'd be like, "You stole Shakespeare books?" I was like, "Yeah." She's like, "Well, at least you stole the good ones." And can't home. get mad at you, dude. She, yeah, you're like the dude. You roll into the hotel room, open the bag on the bed instead of like different guns, like the scene Taxi Driver. You got all these different books. You open your your trench coat jacket, and there's no watches, but there's mad literature just hanging. <laughs> Seriously, like I was, I was that kid. That's I would go, I would, I, when I went to English High, the first thing I did was I went through the library because we had a class in the library and I would, people would be like, what are you doing? I would go through every stack looking for books that I didn't have and I would just like pluck them and I would steal one book a week. And I have, I have in my closet, I have two crates. Slowly, they didn't catch you. That's why you, Andy, yeah. you framed that shit. One couple pebbles in the yard of the prison in Shawshank every yeah. day. They never know you're breaking out, dude. Then you got the whole fucking library. Yeah, so what happened is like at the end of my time at English, 
Like I looked in my crates and I got like all these different books that like I, I they didn't even notice were missing because at the time people weren't really using the library when I first got there. So oh, wow, that's crazy. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, it was a mess. When I first got to English, it was a mess. But uh, a guy named Gerald um, Sullivan, uh, he cleaned up the school, Irish man. JP Gerald Sullivan? Or no? I, I believe so. He had his, uh, it's crazy because... His name's brother, I don't know. Oh, is it young, crazy a man or a young kid? No, he's, a, he's an old man. And uh, I think Gerald Sullivan might be his son. I think Gerald Sullivan might be his son because he okay. ended up... His son ended up going to the school, which is something that I really respected. Because it's rarely does a kid when your your parents one of the uh, authoritative figures at said school. Yeah, it's got to be rarely. Rarely did a white, a right Irish guy at a public yeah. school have his child go to that same public school yeah. when he could have gone to a private school, a parochial school, and out out there in Massachusetts or the other other um metro area. Yeah, it's true. Oh man, dude, just having your parent be like a fucking teacher or God forbid, like a principal or a disciplinarian, like. It's like having a bullseye in your back, dude. You just get fucked with every day, dude. Oh my god. Yeah, and the difference was everybody loved his dad, so you shit. know. Then motherfuckers might like you, might befriend you, <laughs> you extra chocolate milk or some shit, dude. <laughs> Yo, dog. Where can um people like check out all your books and shit, like or all your writing shit? Because I know you have a ton of other pieces of journalistic masterworks that don't exist mm -hmm. in printed form. So uh, anything you look, anything of mine you're looking for, you can probably find everything I wrote for OK Player, OK Player Author Dart Items. Uh, you can find everything else on Muckrack. I have a Muckrack page. What? Or what, uh, what? Dude, tell me. I'm an amateur writer. Like, uh, not like a new one. What is that? a Muckrack? What? Muckrack. Muckrack is pretty much like IMDb, but for your writing career. Jesus so, Christ, dude! I need to get my yeah. I need to get. My so you just link. You just link. Go to Dart Adams Muckrat, and you'll find links to shit I wrote on every Tumblr, uh, every blog, every site that ever uh, paid me to write. They have links to the, pretty much everything there. My Medium, uh, Medium slash at Dart underscore Adams because I think it's still connected to Twitter. Um, and then there's uh, my book, which is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Walmart. Uh, there's an independent store. There's an independent bookstore. I can't remember the name of it, like Brooks or some shit like that. It's selling there. It's selling. Um, Alibris will give you links to just about every place you can find it. So there's that. Working on um, night work. And the Book of Dark 2 hopefully will be out, luckily, fall 2021. Mm. Hell yes. Start. Yo, do you, like, do you ever, like, my book was in select mom and pop bookstores, but mostly all these online retailers like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, ebook, like, uh, like 90-something percent of my sales came from not actual bookstores. It was all online. Does that yeah. ever, like... I don't know, it bums me out because I love bookstores and shit. I mean, I'm glad to sell books online, like wherever that like, I can sell them, whoever's, you know, whatever retailer people are going to, but it made me like, does it ever bum you out that maybe you're not selling in bookstores as much and it's more online, even though we can't control that kind of shit? Uh, for this book, not as much. But the crazy thing was that my book, the way it came out and the way it was selling was so weird. 
that people wanted to buy them from me directly and I never had copies. Yeah, so, do that too. Yeah, so like people wanted to like, yo, can I just come meet you and buy a copy? I was like, I've never, I yeah. I had my book after about 50 people got, got it. Sometimes you know you're gonna, I had to haggle to get certain copies for myself, just for like family and yeah. shit. The yes, like the, my the copies were selling so fast when it came out that my publisher had a copy. You know, he didn't have multiple copies to send me of my own book because every copy that was printed was sold. Yeah, it's and, not like I think people envision it like when back when people used to sell like actual CDs and shit, like pressing up your own mixtape yeah. and you have a couple hundred boxes. It's not like that. If a publisher puts out your book, like they don't want to just give you a bunch of books; they want to sell them through their yeah. channels and their well, outlets. Well, especially if they're independent. If it's yeah. a major publisher or something like that, they have books that they send to people because that's how they get the quotes. Yeah, you yeah. They want to use it to like go to different fucking, um, I don't know, what do you call those media outlets? Uh, like yeah. Because yeah. people have agents and shit. Me, I think like the first hundreds, the first few hundreds of the books sold, it was a point where they didn't even have any more books to sell, but people were ordering it. So they had to print more books to keep up with the demand. So like, that was a weird thing to experience. There was a point in my book um, selling experience where I was um, out hanging out and shit at a uh, bull market in Somerville. I was at a uh, 7L's uh, vinyl shop, right? And I showed him on Amazon that they had removed the add to, um, add to cart feature on my book. Oh, cause it was out of print? No, because they had, people had ordered so many that they didn't allow them to order more until they kept up with the demand of the original of the original order. Dude, that's because you're a fucking big time literary fucking mastermind, bro. That's why you're putting out. It was it was it was it was a weird experience, man. It's like even now, like the book's been out for like maybe nine, close to nine months, and it's yeah. still one of those things where it's like, I have a book. Dude, it, honestly, it's my favorite thing to say is like that I have a book because it makes me feel like I'm better than you and I'm smarter than you. doesn't matter what else you got. You could have like the fucking Maserati and the shit and like that. Like, I feel better than you because I have a book out. Not really, but it is a, it's a great accomplishment, though, because, you know, you put your fucking heart into it and you write from a personal standpoint. Like you in particular, like one thing I would say about Dart's writing, if you get to read it, especially when he's writing about music, you know, you're not beholden to anybody, but you're like true relationship with the craft and the culture. Like, and I don't even say it's like your understanding or love for it, but like it's your relationship with it that is like the most evident part about your writing that makes when I read about your shit that you write on music, it doesn't sound like a guy writing a piece for a fucking media outlet. Mm. And it doesn't seem like a review or, or a consensus about where the, the culture's at. It just feels like, this guy who loves this music or doesn't love this piece of music right here, but based on what his whole relationship with hip hop is in general or music in general. And that's why yeah. anybody out there gets Dart's book or read any of his shit, you, you're going to find that out real quick. That's one of my favorite things about reading your shit. Yeah. Well, I had to uh, figure out really early what it meant to be a critic and a writer, because when you write, and your work for hire, you really understand that you have to pitch to everybody, right? And you have to pitch, 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 and your work for hire. And I didn't understand that because 
I take everything personally. To me, music, art, culture, it doesn't get more personal than that. Yeah. So if you tell me that I don't think we should run an article about this album, this book, this film, or this piece of art, I take that personally like Michael Jordan in the motherfucking last dance. Yeah. And I like, well, fuck you then. I'm going to write about it myself on my site. And the thing is that the piece that that person got paid to write about, nobody reads it past three weeks. And people are still reading the shit I wrote about in 2012, eight years later. Fuck you. You know? So Stop like. on these dudes. You gotta start. So, you, know, you gotta stunt your literary prowess on these motherfuckers. He writes books. Fuck you. Not really. That's, <laughs> that's sometimes that makes me feel better about myself. Some days, like, well, at least I got a book out. But then when you write yeah. a book or you publish a book or a book is published, then everyone I'm sure asks you, what's next? You got some more shit coming. So it's like, fuck. Yeah. Write another fucking yeah. book. I mean, I always do, but at the same time, it's crazy because I look up. And somebody's like, oh, yo, Dart, can I talk to you? It's like, I read your book and I love, and I'm just like, that's insane. When people hit you on Twitter yes. or, or, or I, I look on IG and someone linked uh, fucking words that I wrote out of, uh, that I wrote in 2013. And they're like, yo, this is amazing. Like what? Dude, that's just, that's like a, just a true testament to like your craft's impact on, on, on them right there. That's a fucking beautiful thing, man. Dart, I have one real serious question. How tired is your arm from holding the fucking iPhone, bro? His was funny. Um, it's May 23rd, 71 days of quarantine. This is probably the 40th Zoom call I've done. The fourth? 40th. Oh, 40th. Oh, well, I feel very yeah. special. So, so, so I'm telling you, like this, I'm getting everything. This is nothing. This is nothing. This is nothing. Oh. Not You're like Debbie does Dallas, like way down the line. This is easy, <laughs> dude. You're just yeah, this, this is nothing. All right, y'all. This episode of the Damaged Goods Podcast was brought to you by Elite Botanicals. Elite Botanicals is originally the CBD division of Elite Cannabis. If you guys have heard me talk about them, you know this is my favorite CBD product out there. The only one that truly works. I swear by it, that's why I'm endorsing them, not for any other reason. And now they're back with their new line for your little pets, Whole Pet CBD. They are one of the first companies farming high CBD cannabis under industrial hemp rigs. They've been working with CBD since 2013 with one of the first licensees in Colorado. Also, they've been working with Colorado State University since 2016 on their canine research study with CBD. So they know what they're doing. Their focus is providing farm-to-table product that uses the best ingredients possible, ultra-refined, distilled, full-spectrum CBD oil at high potency for reasonable pricing. That's the problem. Most of these other guys are overpriced for their non-working stuff. This allows for effective dosing and a 30-day-plus supply per unit. For the pets, they've got drops that go on their food or in their mouth. they got chicken and salmon-flavored ones. They've got soft gel capsules. They got a gravy powder. You just sprinkle that over their food or put a couple of water in there. And it makes a nice little gravy mix chocked full of CBD, glucosamine, and omegas for their joints. They've got nose and toes balm for cracked noses and paws. And they got some all natural treats on the way. All this is available at wholepetcbd.com. Elite cannabis, elite botanicals, and now whole pet CBD. All from Elite. Go check it out.